We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Luke. Uh, we find ourselves today in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 down to 31. Luke 16, 19 down to 31. And uh, I'm going to kind of read and go through it a little piecemeal. But let me pray just briefly one more time in advance of investigating God's good word. Let's pray together again. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. We pray as Jesus says in this parable, we pray that we would hear the word. Help us toward that end now, we pray. In Jesus' name, every man. So have you or someone you know ever asked the question, or actually not asked the question, but made the statement, you ever made the statement that said something along these lines, I would believe Jesus, I would follow Jesus if the resurrected Jesus were to appear in my room. If I could just see some big miracle, some resurrected Jesus, something else fantastical, if that could show up, then I would believe. But as it is, I can't believe some book written by some men thousands of years ago. Have you ever said that? Or maybe someone you know have said that, maybe you have said that? Well, if so, Jesus is going to address that claim head on this morning. And Jesus' answer is again crystal clear, uncompromising, and countercultural. We've seen as we've been walking through Luke, we've seen Luke that we've seen that Jesus is often tender, maybe even more tender than you thought he was. He has this special interest in the poor and the outcast, the disenfranchised. But we've also seen that Jesus is tough, haven't we? He's tough. He calls sin, sin. He leaves no third or fourth option for people after they die. He regularly is tough on the rich, the powerful, the self-righteous, and he isn't afraid to talk about hell. And we will see these things again today. Jesus' message is one of faith and repentance. He says that if you die to yourself, turn from sin, trust him, you'll know life. You'll know the kingdom. But if you know, you'll only know life in hell forever. These kind of two themes come together in this parable that we see today. Luke chapter 16. Take a look. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. And he who and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we have two characters. We have a parable with two characters in it, right? You've got the rich man and you have the poor man. And Amongst these two, we see in particular amongst the rich man, that's going to be the emphasis of Jesus, the rich man, he regularly has deliveries of the finest clothes from his online purchases to his doorstep. He wears the best clothes. If you were to see him, you would all say, yes, this guy is dressed great. He's dressed beautifully. He looks good. And also, he eats good. He eats really, really good. He eats the best foods Every single day. Most of his meals are Instagram worthy. You could take pictures of them and they would look great. And he has a bunch of food in his cupboard as well to eat. On and on it goes. 
This man is regularly sort of in GQ magazine and all the TV shows they want him to show up. Meanwhile, the other character in the story is this poor man named Lazarus. And by the way, did you notice that the poor man is named as opposed to the rich man is not named? I think that gives us an indication of how Jesus knows his people by name. But anyway, Lazarus is the opposite of this rich man. He, he lays at the rich man's gate. And not only does he lay there, he's covered with sores. Sort of reminds us of Job, doesn't it? Just this constant suffering. He sees the rich man eating every single day and akin to the prodigal son sitting in the pig slop, he just wants a crumb from the table of the rich man. In the eyes of the world, he might be considered, this Lazarus would be considered a kind of failure of sorts. And so to summarize, we have this Lazarus who's poor, he's sick, he's hungry, he's neglected. And then we have the rich man that is wealthy, healthy, and happy. Jesus is, in this story, he's painting a contrast in these two figures so that we would learn, so that we would taste what Jesus is cooking throughout this gospel. And in order to kind of get a taste for that, let's just rehearse in our minds what we've seen uh, from Jesus in the book of Luke. Just go back, just for instance, back to the chapter 11. Do you remember chapter 11 where Jesus gave those six woes to the Pharisees? How he warned of the leaven of the Pharisees, how they serve themselves and not others. And then into chapter 12, where Jesus, remember, told the parable of the rich fool. Do you remember that one? Where he was building, he would get more and more wealthy, he would build bigger, bigger barns, only to know that his life was going to be taken away that day, and he couldn't take all of it. And then Jesus, in chapter 12, called his disciples to not be anxious about stuff, but to live simply and boldly. And then remember chapter 13, where Jesus called them to repent, to strive to enter the narrow door that most won't go in because most are hypocrites, he said. Then into chapter 14, remember that? We had the parable of the great banquet. Remember who was going into the parable of the great banquet? Remember it was the poor, the blind, the crippled. They were coming in. And remember who was staying out? The wealthy had excuses. They didn't come in. And then Jesus had that call to die to self, to take up cross, follow, to repent, believe. And then in chapter 15, you remember that one? That's the story of the prodigal son, the younger brother. He gets riches only to eventually find himself in a pig slop at the end. Wherein he learns once again the need to repent and come home. Then into chapter 16, what we saw last week, the parable, remember, of the dishonest manager where uh, Jesus concludes, you cannot love both God and money. And so friends, it's really clear what Luke is trying to show us about Jesus' ministry. He's consistently showing us this common narrative that the rich, the wealthy, the self-righteous guys that think they're in good standing with the Lord, since they're in good standing with the world, He's showing us that they actually are not in good standing with the Lord. They appear good on the outside, inside they're not. But meanwhile, Luke has been showing us in the ministry of Christ, the poor, the crippled, the lame, they are entering in before all of the elites. And why is it the poor are entering in before the elites? Well, because it seems for the poor, wealth has not clouded the vision of their need. It seems as though the poor, their ears have not gotten clogged because they're so aware of their need. Their circumstances have forced them to understand that need, as opposed to the rich man that really has no needs. 
Therefore, those poor are more apt to do as Jesus demands. They see their need. Therefore, when Jesus calls them to repent, to have the wealth of the kingdom, they do. Whereas the wealthy elites, they go on being blind, being deaf. They live and eat sumptuously and assume that's a sign of the favor of God since they claim to love God as it is. But Jesus has said, friends, you cannot serve God and money. We saw that last week. Then verse 15. Take a look at verse 15 of chapter 16. God knows hearts. That's the inside. As opposed to the world, which will evaluate the outside. He goes on to say, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so, friends, having done that little review, this parable... Chapter 19 down to 21, these comparable figures, the rich man, the poor man, this parable, these two, it brings all of these themes together into one story. The rich man is exalted in the eyes of men. Meanwhile, Lazarus lays outside the gate of the rich man and he is not exalted by men. And yet Jesus looks at these two men through the lenses of the kingdom and says, you all have it all backwards. Lazarus is at, in fact exalted in the eyes of Almighty God, and the rich man is the one of abomination. And why? Well, because again, the rich man loves money more than he loves God. Whereas Lazarus, the poor man, apparently repents and loves God more than money. How do I get that? Well, take a look. Look at the next verse, verse 22. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus ta- at, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you, in your lifetime, receive good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us." And so I get, friends, that Lazarus loves God more than money, not just because Lazarus doesn't have money. That's not how I get that. But for the obvious reason, that when he dies, he goes to heaven. And the reason he goes to heaven, again, is not because he doesn't have money, because he, assumedly, has the same faith of Abraham. Right? Abraham, chapter 15 of Genesis, had faith in God and his promises, credited to him his righteousness. So, the Lazarus, so Lazarus, the poor man, has the faith of Abraham, which is why he goes to Abraham. When in Jesus' parable, Abraham says to the rich man in verse 25 that he had good things and Lazarus had bad things. Now listen, guys, don't, don't lose sight of this. This is important. When I read that, it's tempted, you're tempted to say, if you get good stuff, you don't get to go to heaven. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus doesn't mean to teach us that by being poor or suffering, you earn your way to heaven. He's not teaching that. Nor does Jesus mean that by being wealthy, one earns their way to hell. As it is, that's probably most of us would go to hell. That's not what Jesus is teaching in this passage. No. In fact, 
that's why it's important, friends, to read Scripture in context. As I've been rehearsing through Luke, this parable means to wrap up what Jesus has been teaching about wealth and worldly orientations. He means to illustrate that you cannot serve both God and money. He means to illustrate that what is exalted in the eyes of men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus wants the Pharisees, guys, and us, and us to see just because you claim to know the Lord and are living comfortably comfortably now does not mean that you will live in comfort in heaven. Likewise, the opposite is true. Just because you might be suffering now like Lazarus and yet hoping in Christ, that does not mean that you are going to hell. Your suffering, that is, is not a curse from God. God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. These Pharisees, remember, were religious people and they were wealthy people. They claimed to have Abraham as their father, which, by the way, that's why Jesus inserts the language of the rich man as Father Abraham. These Pharisees had Abraham as their father, uh, and so Jesus puts that into the parable, and here we see in Jesus' parable that the rich man, the Pharisees as a general group, not all of them, but the Pharisees are actually bound for hell. And hell, according to Jesus in this parable, is full of anguish and torment. But don't lose sight of this, guys. Jesus is loving these Pharisees by telling them this story in advance of their dying. He could have been mean and just kind of held that information, but he's trying to get them to repent. So he tells them in advance of their death that they have need. They need to repent. They're not actually fine. And the reason why they're not fine is because they have a greater love for money, which then manifests itself, don't lose sight of this, in their neglect of those in need. And that reveals then their neglect of those in need amidst their wealth. That reveals that they love money more than they do God. So let's stop here just for a moment and let's do a little bit of application, shall we? Who are the rich people that Jesus is speaking to today? Like in our lives together, in the world, in us, who who are they people? Who are the Pharisees that claim to have Abraham as their father? They practice the law and yet in reality, they love money more than God. Who are they? What might they look like in our current context? Well, these would probably be the person who believes in justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Maybe they go to church on most Sundays. And yet they would also say, the way I spend my money has no effect. It says nothing about my faith. They see them as sort of two separate worlds. They they might not answer it that way on the test, as it were, but that's sort of how they live. They see the two as separate. They would claim faith in Christ, yet they live as though the way they spend their wealth or even other aspects of their life doesn't really have any bearing because that's a kind of separate thing. As an example of this, I, I was watching this past week of a video of a young man that was uh, in Arkansas, some rural city in Arkansas. And he was holding a Black Lives Matter sign. And the video was all of these people coming by just slandering this man time and time and time and time again, just with these terrible words. And as I was watching that video, I couldn't help but wonder, knowing the churched state of Arkansas, I couldn't help but wonder how many of those people that are slandering this man incessantly also go to Bible-believing, gospel-loving churches. 
And yet they're comfortable with slandering someone at their own sort of gate. Now this example, of course, is not referencing money per se, but the principle is the same. A, a possible confession of justification. I don't know that all these people are Christians, but I'm sure many of them are, if just knowing the state of Arkansas. A, a possible confession of justification, and yet a practice of love that contradicts what they say they believe. And they go on in that practice and they seem to have no problem just laying into it. Claiming Christ, possibly, laying, claiming Christ, they willfully, habitually, comfortably lean into loving something else more than Jesus. Thinking all the while when they die, they will go to heaven. Again, kind of compartmentalizing their life. Sort of like math and science, right? Or work and home. Offense and defense. I love Jesus and then this is what I think about that issue, separating the two. Now, I want to be clear as I sort of use this example, guys, it's important that we understand. We believe unashamedly and clearly. I believe, you believe in our statement of beliefs in our church. We believe that one is saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But as it has been said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never left alone. James 1.18 makes this crystal clear. I show you my faith by my works. That's what James teaches us. And so our works, they reveal where our faith lies, where our treasure lies. Just as, we, where, just as where we sleep re reveals where our real home is. As Jesus says, every tree is known by its what? Fruit, yeah. Money reveals, the way we spend our money reveals where our treasure lies. Money is little more than a revelation of where your treasure is. And so if you claim Christ and yet you regularly use it as this rich man to indulge yourself with little to no regard for the kingdom and where its treasures can be found, then there your heart is revealed. I want to be clear about something though right here too, all these little slight caveats. Lest you be confused, we are not talking about the amount of money. Jesus, remember, he's after the heart. After the heart. It's about the love of Christ and those in need. Right? We remember the story of the parable, right, of Jesus telling that the, the widowed woman, remember, she gave a penny. And the wealthy people gave a whole bunch more than that. And Jesus said the one that gave the penny gave more than the others. It's not about this amount of money. It's about the heart. The rich man indulged himself day after day while Lazarus lay outside of his gate just wanting some crumbs and apparently he doesn't feed him. We find, guys, listen to the story. The dogs tended to Lazarus more than the rich man did. The one that claimed faith in God. Dogs tended more to Lazarus than the rich man. So it's not amount of money. It's the interest in Christ and thereby implication your interest in others since he cared for you. And so there's freedom for the Christian when it comes to purchases. Jesus doesn't need your money. <laughs> he doesn't need it. He owns the world. He cares about your heart and about the lives of those in need. Jesus values people more than stuff. He wants people to know the love of God and to have the basic needs of all people in the world met. Therefore, if you claim to be justified by grace through faith in Christ... You're going to be willing to use your wealth for the good of others in Jesus' name. But if you won't, 
then you reveal that you don't know the love of Christ, even though you might say you have it. And so if you don't then, if you don't have the love of Christ, the spirit of Christ within you, as is evidenced by the way that you love others with your money, then, listen, you will stand to be surprised upon your death, just as this rich man was. You will stand to dwell forever in the, as Jesus says here, the anguish of hell. Look at verse, look at verse 26. You will be in a place that is fixed. Fixed. It is a fixed. It is permanent. There is a heaven in the category of Jesus. There's a heaven and there's a hell. Either you are permanently in one or the other. You cannot, the text says in verse 26, you can't pass from one to the other. None, not able, circle those words. There is no purgatory, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And I know, guys, listen to me. I understand. Some of you are going to walk away. Maybe you're watching this going, here we go. Baptist preacher talking about hell. Friends, I just, I hope you see. We're just walking straight through the book of Luke. And I'm saying exactly what Jesus is saying. It has become more and more popular today for people to claim salvation in Christ and yet deny the reality of hell. But that couldn't be any more contradictory to the teaching of Christ. And especially if we're going to call for justice, we have to have a hell. Jesus speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He sees hell as a kind of satisfaction of God's justice. And the ironic thing is, listen to this, the ironic thing is, for those that deny the reality of hell, this story teaches us that's the one thing they want to tell you after they die, if they go there. Isn't that interesting? Ironic that they don't want to talk about it, don't want to affirm it, yet if they actually go to hell after they die, it's the one thing they do want to talk about. Take a look at the story, verse 27. Remember, we've already, we've already read that they've gone to, uh, the rich man has gone to hell, the, uh, Lazarus has gone to heaven. And it says in verse 27, and he said, this is the rich man, then I beg you, so he's come to the realization he can't go up to heaven, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so the rich man, realizing his state is fixed, he turns to option two. He turns to appeal to his brothers who apparently are living and loving just like him, thinking that their state is the same as his. And so he says, since I can't go out, let's do something out. Let's warn them at least. Go and send Lazarus to them. Notice, by the way, there's still no sense of repentance in this rich man. He still wants to use Lazarus for himself. Go send Lazarus to them. And Jesus says through the voice of Abraham in the story, send a resurrected Lazarus over up there to warn my brothers. And Jesus says through the voice of Abraham in the story, quote, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them, not the resurrected Lazarus. Moses and the prophets are shorthand for just uh, calling it the Old Testament, the Bible, a shorthand for the Bible. Let them hear the Bible, Abraham says. 
And look at the rich man's response again. He says in essence, no, 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 no. Listen, if they hear Moses and the prophets at church all the time, you know, they, they get that. They, no, 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 raise Lazarus from the dead. That's gonna cause them to repent. And then if, if we get this resurrected Lazarus to walk in, then, then they'll kind of be woken up to believe. They'll repent. And that brings us back to the question that I asked at the beginning. Have you or someone you know ever said, I'll trust Christ if I could see his resurrected person in front of me, but as it is, I can't trust the Bible, written by a bunch of men. That's the exact scenario that we find in the story. Exact same story. He has died. He has found that his position in hell is real. It's fixed. He has loved money more than God. He's been deceived. And so the one request he has after coming to that realization is God, Jesus or Father Abraham, as it were, do something miraculous to warn my family of the reality of hell while there's still time for them. Bring Lazarus, bring a resurrected Abraham Lincoln, bring a resurrected Billy Graham, bring them back and let them warn my family. Bring something fantastical to their attention that in order to help them see that they have a greater love for money than they do God. And then they'll, then they'll be saved. And what is, uh, what's, what's Abraham or Jesus' response here? Look at verse 31. It's a sobering and a jarring response. I'll read it again. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should arise from the dead. I want you guys to put yourself in this scenario. Ask yourself the question. If you were given the opportunity... Imagine yourself not to know Jesus. That might be some here. That might be some there watching at home. Imagine you're in that scenario and you have the options of having the Bible read and explained to you or to have some resurrected Jesus or person come and appeal to you. Which one do you think would be the most compelling answer? Which one do you think would most compel you? That's the word, by the way, in verse 31. Convinced. The word there is persuaded. Which one would you be most persuaded by? A resurrected Jesus, resurrected Lazarus, or the Bible explained to you? The rich man seems to think that they're going to be more persuaded by the resurrected Lazarus. And Jesus says, nope. He says, if they don't believe the clear teaching of Scripture, they won't, be, they won't believe the words of a resurrected dead man. And guys, here's what's ironic about all this. This is exactly what happens. Jesus rises from the grave. And hundreds of people see him. And not only do the hundreds not believe him, many are hostile to those that do. So friends, listen, just listen, listen, listen. Do not believe that seeing is believing. Believe that believing is seeing. Throngs of people saw the miracles of Christ, including his resurrection, and the throngs still didn't believe. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Seeing Christ and his hope in the word of God. That is Jesus' response to the question of how we escape hell and come into the eternal comforts of heaven. Hearing the Bible. Now, if we were to try and identify who most of us might be in this story, either the rich man or the poor man, the reality is for most of us, and not all of us, but for most of us, we would probably be more like the rich man. 
Most of us have no trouble dialing. We might do it tonight, and that would be fine. Most of us have no trouble dialing up Uber Eats, right? For most anything you want. Most of us have no trouble going online and getting a, you know, like I did, a pair of shorts, you know. Maybe not the finest linen in the world, but nevertheless, we can do that. It's no problem for us. And guys, let me listen to me. That's not bad. That's a good gift from God. To have that financial security. There's nothing to be ashamed about in being financially secure. Some of the greatest servants in the history of the church, including David, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, they were wealthy people. The question is, are you hearing the word? That is, are you like that person that believes you're justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, and yet at the same time, you see your understanding of money and other things for that matter as really saying little about your soul? You just sort of compartmentalize those things. And so some of you may be asking, Nathan, can you give me a little help, brother? Come on. What might that look like a little more practically? Well, Jesus gives us in this passage three ways to evaluate where we're at in advance of our deaths. Three ways. Here they go. One first, do you hear the word of God? And when I say hear, I mean see. <laughs> you hear, you hear it and see the truth of it. Jesus says that the hearing of the word of God is more effective than to bring about repentance than, uh, and to bring about life than, would, than it would be to hear a listening of a dead man raised from the grave. Hearing the word read, taught, preached is more effective than the most fantastical piece of evidence that you can imagine. And guys, this is why we center at our church on the teaching of the word. This is why. Jesus tells us that the word is the vessel he has chosen to awaken faith and repentance more even than miracles. Revealing then that scripture is seven things. These are going to go fast. Ready? Reveals, the hearing the word changes, reveals seven things about the Bible. One, that it's true. That the Bible is true. It's not some legendary book that ancient people pieced together. It's the testimony to the truth about God and the world. And also reveals, secondly, that Scripture is authoritative. We don't stand over it, we stand under it. It also reveals, thirdly, that Scripture is clear. There's enough in the Old Testament to save someone. Did y'all catch that? The gospel is in the Old Testament. That's why, I like, next time, write in your Bibles, the gospel according to Genesis, the gospel according to Exodus, the gospel, you know, that's how it is. That's how Jesus saw it. It's clear, which leads us to the third thing, that Scripture is, uh, fourth thing, that Scripture is sufficient. There's enough there. It's clear enough, and there's enough in there to save someone, to rescue them out of hell and into comfort of heaven. And then fifthly, Scripture reveals here that it's powerful, The Spirit of God uses the power of the Word to save people and bring them on the wings to angels, on the wings of angels to God. And the way that it is powerful is because it is truthfully, authoritatively, clearly, sufficiently pointing us to Christ in His atoning work. Six, Scripture obviously is Christ-centered. We'll see this at Christmas. Catch that for a minute. At Christmas, we'll get to the end of Luke, Lord willing, and Jesus resurrected Jesus, same situation that, that uh, the rich man wants, resurrected Jesus up, and what does he do? Luke 24, 44 to 48. Luke 24, 44 to 48. These are my words. This is Jesus talking. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, everything written about who? About me, 
in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Same language is right here. Then, listen what he said, he resurrected, he points to the Bible, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance, remember that's what he needs, Verse 30 of 16, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Scripture is focused on the person and the work of Christ, the one that came and faithfully paid the price of my sin and your sin, that you might be, that he might take that penalty from you on his own back on the cross, buried, resurrected, our repentance and belief, his righteousness comes to us, our sin goes to him. Great exchange, we have life eternal. That's an amen right there, right? That's what the scripture is pointing towards. It's pointing towards. And that leads us to the last thing, the seventh thing that scripture teaches us. Scripture is precious. It's precious. And it's precious because it testifies about the precious realities of those ancient roads that lead us to the preciousness of heaven on the preciousness of Christ. And therefore, if you're going to be saved from a love of money and to God, hear the scriptures every day. I had pages of this. I whittled it down to like three verses, <laughs> right? The scripture testifies, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Right? Jesus prayed, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. How does sanctification come, Jesus? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Think about the book of Acts. I had a whole list of verses. All right, y'all, it's getting hot. So like the whole book of Acts, what you see time and again, right? Preach, 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 preach. And then people say, repent, repent. And then people repent and they come to faith. All the way through the book of Acts. The word goes forth, people respond. And then what happens? This is the second thing. When you're evaluating where you're at, you hear the word, and then the second thing is you do, as the word comes and you hear it, or as you, you see it, the you, second thing you do is you repent. You hear, that's verse 30. That's exactly what la the rich man understands that needs to happen. You see it there in verse 30? His repentance needs to happen. It's not like he just needs to give some money away, get poor, no, he understands repentance is what needs to happen. Jesus has been emphasizing, as we've seen time and again, repentance is the recognition of submission. It reveals that we understand that we are not God, but he is, and we are sorry for our sins when we act like kings and queens ourselves. Repentance, as we considered a couple weeks ago, it's this about face, turning away from licentiousness, self-authority to the Father. It's going back home. It's saying, you, Jesus, are king. Forgive me for not loving you as I should. Forgive me and loving things more than you. Forgive me. That's repentance. We can look back at verse 14 to get a good example of what it looks like to hear the word but not repent. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, there it is, heard all these things. So they heard. They heard the word of Christ. And they ridiculed him. So they heard the word but they didn't repent. So you may hear the word of Christ, but the way in which you know if you're actually in Christ in advance of your death is to see if you're repenting in response to his word. If not, you're bound for the destiny of the rich man and not the poor man. So hear the word of God. When you hear it, convict you of sin. Turn away from sin. Turn to Jesus. Don't turn to your actions. Turn to Jesus to save you. And that leads me to the third thing you do. You hear the word, you repent, and then third, you love those in need. 
So you manifest your repentance, your faith. You love those in need. The rich man indulged himself day after day as Lazarus lay by his gate with nothing. Dogs and angels tended to him, but the rich man did not attend to him. Revealing that while he claimed to have faith, the faith of Abraham, in reality, his actions revealed that he had faith in the joy of what money could do for him more. He closed his heart off to the poor, to the needy, while he indulged himself. And friends, that is not the spirit of Christ. Jesus, right, was rich, and yet for our sake became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the spirit of Christ. Using our wealth, using our time, our talent, our treasures, for those in need. Not primarily because we have to, because God doesn't need our money. We give because it shows that we have heard the word, we've repented, and we are on our way to heaven, and we want others to come in too. Our giving does not save us. It reveals that we have been saved. It shows us that we are treasuring things in heaven more than things of the earth, and that we love him. And so hear the word, beloved. You at home, if you're not a Christian, hear the word. Turn from sin and love those in need in response just as Christ has loved you. These are the ways in which Jesus has given us out in front of our deaths to prepare us for what comes after. And what a joy it is that God has given such a beautiful and precious and sufficient book to point us to the person and the work of Christ and to orient us towards it every day and every week. So may we give ourselves to it and that in order that we might not be surprised at our deaths, but instead we will, like Lazarus, be carried in on the backs of angels into the throne room of God where we will rest with him at his banquet table forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the word that points to Jesus. God, thank you that you've made us to live in such a place that we can have an abundance of the teaching of the word. We pray for the many that don't have it, need it. But Lord, may we give ourselves daily, weekly to hear the word, that is to say, see the word, to repent when sin comes up and to love those in need around us with our wealth and with our rest of our lives so as to indicate that we love you because you first loved us. And remind us, God, we don't have to do these things to earn our way. Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. And so we rejoice in the one that was rich, that became poor, that we might become rich in him. We love you. And God, we thank you for the kindness of this word, of this parable, to help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.